0: Well, it's time for another episode of Survivor Sanctuary. I am Kelly, your host for the podcast. Thanks for joining me today. Excited to dive in. As always, I kind of miss just hanging out and chatting. And every week I get that itch like it's time to turn on the mic and chat once again. So I'm glad to be back here with you. And of course, I'm going to give a quick plug for the Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group because I'd love for you to join us there. If you listen to the podcast and you've never joined us on Facebook, go ahead and search Survivor Sanctuary request to be added. And it's going to prompt you to answer a question because that's just what we do on Survivor Sanctuary. Before you can get into the group, it's going to ask you a very simple question. You answer it and I'll add you into the group and you can join our conversations there. Well, today... I want to talk about an aspect of sexual abuse that I won't say it doesn't get talked about enough because we actually do talk about it a lot, but I'm not sure that it gets the attention that it deserves as far as in how it affects the abused person. And what I'm referring to is grooming. And if you're unfamiliar with grooming, or I mean, I'm assuming that the majority of the people who are listening to this podcast have heard about grooming in sexual abuse. Grooming is basically, and I'm going to get to the part where we kind of disagree on how exactly to refer to grooming because a, a lot of us in the survivor and advocate community don't love the word grooming. So we'll get to that. But first, I'm just going to explain what the general term for grooming is. It's basically when somebody. Uh, begins to build a relationship, uh, to build trust, to build a connection with the person that they are going to abuse. So they build this relationship and trust and connection so that they're able to manipulate uh, the person they're going to abuse to exploit them and their feelings. And eventually that grooming process leads. To abuse, but it typically starts out with grooming. Now, the grooming process can last minutes, it can last hours, it can last days, weeks, months, even years sometimes. Um, There's not really a set amount of time, but typically when sexual abuse occurs, some form of grooming is occurring prior to the abuse. And now, before I go further with talking about grooming, I do want to talk about um, the controversy. Can I call it a controversy? The controversy surrounding calling this grooming. I think the first person that I ever heard uh, say they didn't like the term grooming was Jimmy Hinton. He's of the Speaking Out on Sex Abuse podcast, a very outspoken advocate for sexually abused children. And again, if you're listening to this podcast, more than likely you've heard of Jimmy Hinton. So he has said before that he really doesn't like the term grooming. And I don't disagree with him. I listened to his episode on on grooming on his podcast and why he doesn't think that the word really fits correctly. He prefers to look at it as testing, that people who sexually abuse are testing everyone. They're, they're testing the child they're gonna abuse. They're testing the family of that child, the community that surrounds that child, and everything that they do is this series of tests. Well, one of the reasons that I kind of could identify with the word grooming is because I always like, and and I've heard it said before, people think of the word grooming and they think of like somebody brushing a horse. That's like what comes to my mind. Someone just standing there like brushing a horse when you're grooming, like grooming a pet, you know, you're basically brushing their hair, taking care of them, you know, tenderly working out the tangles. And for some reason, the word grooming actually did resonate with me because I felt as though that's kind of what was happening to me. I mean, obviously not like I'm a horse and somebody's brushing my hair. Um, So maybe the word grooming doesn't quite fit, but... I always kind of was able to make that connection in my own head. But it makes total sense to me what Jimmy Hinton says about the fact that sexual abusers are constantly testing people because they need to make sure that they can build trust. They need to make sure that they can build connection. They need to make sure that they can manipulate the people around them so that they don't get caught. And even more important than them not getting caught um, is that if they ever did get caught, that no one would believe that they had done what they had done so it it all goes into the grooming process or the testing process so the purpose of this podcast is not really to give like a rundown of what exactly grooming is because again many of us who are listening are familiar with the grooming process and um that's not really the purpose behind talking about grooming for this podcast but I will just go through a, a general list of what grooming behaviors are again the purpose of grooming is basically to uh, prepare a child and the adults around that child to, to for abuse you know to be able to manipulate them to manipulate the child into cooperating to manipulate the family into trusting and you know that's really the purpose behind behind a grooming and I think I mentioned before but you know you're reducing the likelihood that the child will be believed if they ever come forward and disclose that they were abused And also to reduce the likelihood that you're going to get caught, Um, but grooming behaviors can be anything from an adult paying too much attention, maybe seeming overly interested in a particular child, um, maybe creating opportunities to be alone with a child, or multiple children wanting to be around kids all the time. Um, And I've heard, I think Jimmy, just to bring him up once again, but honestly, he is he's a pro at this whole like behaviors of sexual abusers and and knowing how they operate so Um, He said before, a lot of these like, quote unquote, red flag behaviors, they can be like behaviors of people who are not sexual abusers. So they're not a great thing to go on. But just for the purposes of just giving a quick rundown, you know, an adult maybe becoming fixated on a child or giving that kid special privileges, maybe bringing um, that child gifts and just showing a lot more interest in building a relationship with a child or multiple children rather than adults, maybe displaying a favoritism toward one child that they're not displaying toward other kids, showing a lot of interest and just catering to the interest of a child. There are so many different things that you could say are, are grooming behaviors, because if somebody is basically trying to groom a child, you know, they can do so many different things. Um, they may be more physical with a child, maybe touching them more, and that is basically trying to like get the child desensitized to touch and to not think that anything is weird about it. Tickling a child, you know, games with a child, just there's so many different things. Again, the purpose of this podcast is not really to discuss what grooming is, because that's, you know, there's so much literature out there on it. But just to give you that rundown of basic uh, grooming behavior. Now I'm not sure that it makes a ton of difference what term you use for grooming. If you call it grooming, if you call it testing, I'm not positive. I mean I'm sure that there you know are arguments that could be made about you know why it's important to use grooming, why it's important to use testing. But when I really boil down the grooming process or the testing process, when I boil it down into one word, I don't feel like grooming really fits great either because it's too easily misunderstood. What I kind of view the whole process of leading up to sexual abuse is preparing rather than grooming. And that's something that I really feel like in my own story, I could definitely say the whole process of what many experts would call grooming was actually a preparing. The person who is the perpetrator who is going to commit this sexual abuse is preparing not only his victim, the child that he's going to abuse or the child she's going to abuse, not only are they preparing the victim to accept that abuse as something that's okay and allow it to happen or be manipulated into it happening, Um, not only are they preparing that child, but they're also preparing the family of the child they're preparing that family to believe them. If the question would ever come up, like, did you sexually abuse my child or somebody has accused you of this? They're preparing other people, like the family of the victim, to not believe that they could ever do anything like sexually abuse a child. They are preparing the community you know, surrounding them and surrounding the children that they abuse to not accept it if they ever hear that someone has accused them of sexual abuse. So in my mind, if I had to pick a word that I feel like really boils it down, I would pick the word preparing. Because that's essentially what I felt like was happening to me in that grooming process, and what I think is happening to so many people. You don't start out with this explicit sexual abuse. You don't just, you know, abusers, I I won't say you, abusers don't just typically, if they're sexual abusers of children, they typically don't just grab and attack. That's not how it works. It's typically a process that builds up to them eventually abusing a child. The process can be fast, yes, but there's typically some sort of process. So I feel like the word preparing fits the best for my purposes. Like when I look at what happened, like the guy who abused me started preparing me for abuse the first time he met me. And I don't have a lot of super strong memories of the first time I met this guy. And the reason is because it kind of just fits into every other memory that I had around that age. There was nothing out of the ordinary about it. It was just this person who loved kids and was nice to kids and was just friendly to everybody. And he loved my parents. My parents loved him. My siblings all thought he was like this superhero because he was just like this great fun person. So I don't have like this super strong memory of how I first met this person and some feeling of foreboding came over me. Nothing like that. It was just a normal part of my everyday life. And I think that that, even that was part of the grooming or preparing process because he was preparing my entire family. He was preparing all of us children. I don't know how long it took him to decide who his target was going to be and why it was me and not somebody else. I'm I'm one of five kids. Um, There were only two girls in the family, but whatever his process was, he was preparing all of us. He was preparing me to accept his advances. And he did that in a lot of different ways, probably some ways that I don't even know about because I was too young at the time to recognize them. Obviously, if I had a time machine and I could go back in time and have my adult mind, then I could watch every behavior that he had around me and my family. And I could probably identify so many different grooming behaviors and say, okay, that was grooming and this was grooming and he did this to manipulate. And all of it boils down basically the stuff that I remember or not that he was preparing me so that he could start a sexual relationship with me. And obviously it wouldn't be an actual sexual relationship but in his mind, that's that's what it was. And it worked in a sense because all of this preparing that he did or grooming or testing, whatever you wanna call it, he was preparing me to accept it when he started touching me inappropriately. He was preparing me to not think it was anything out of the ordinary for him to just start kissing me the The way that a man kisses his wife or girlfriend, you know, not like an adult kisses a six-year-old child. He was preparing me emotionally, mentally, even physically for it to be okay in my mind for him to do whatever he wanted to do to me. And that part of the grooming process, I think, is something that gets, I don't want to say overlooked because grooming or testing, or preparing, whatever word you want to use, is definitely a part of the abuse process that is discussed. But I don't think that the damage that is caused by the grooming process is something that's discussed quite enough. We're fine talking about the act of sexually abusing a child. And when I say we're fine, no one enjoys talking about it. But I mean, it's it's a given in our minds that if somebody has sexually assaulted a child or sexually abused a child, whatever they've done to that child, it's an automatic connection in our brains that that leads to damage to that child and damage to that child's psyche. And that the act of sexually abusing a child is going to be emotionally, physically, and psychologically damaging to them. And even spiritually in some cases. So we don't have a difficult time making that leap. You could pretty much talk to anybody and they would agree, yes, okay, when a child is sexually abused, unless they're a predator or a predator apologist, which those people definitely exist, they do. Unless they're a predator or an apologist for predators, they're probably going to have no problem admitting, yes, if somebody has this you know, sexual abuse done to them. It damages them and it can be emotionally or physically or spiritually or mentally, whatever. But there's some sort of damage that takes place and it's kind of a given that it would. But I don't think when we think of the grooming process that our brains make that same connection because for me anyway and and maybe you know you your mileage may vary maybe your thoughts on this are a little bit different maybe when you think of the grooming process this is not what happens to you but for me when i think of the grooming process i feel like a lot more emphasis is put on the abuser Um, When I think of grooming, I think of the things that the abuser is doing to me. And so it's easy to kind of look at that and think about the abuser when I think about grooming or when I think about the preparing process. It's what the abuser does. It may not seem like you're this super active participant in the grooming process, but I think thoughts like that and beliefs like that tend to kind of take away from the damage that the grooming process actually does to victims of sexual abuse because the grooming process is about a lot more than just the abuser trying to get his claws into a child. Yes, that's what happens. And yes, that's what an abuser is doing. They're doing everything they can to manipulate a child and that child's family and, and that child's church or school or, or community to believe that they're these pure, wonderful people who would never cause anybody harm. And they're doing it for the express purpose of being able to cause harm undetected. But if that's all we think about when we think about the grooming process or the preparing or testing process that an abuser goes through or puts a victim through, if that's all we think about is the abuser being manipulative and the abuser using these, you know, sweet, innocent, nice tactics to be able to dupe a child and an entire community, if that's all that we see, I think that we're missing a greater effect of the grooming process and I believe that that's the effect that it has on the victim who will eventually be sexually abused. Sexual abuse is extremely damaging, but the grooming process itself is also extremely damaging. Because while the sexual abuse is something that a victim is going to have to grapple with, and I mean it depends on the victim, and the amount of support that victim had and and the level of abuse that it was and so many different factors to be able to work through sexual abuse. It depends on so many different things. But I think that it's safe to say that the process by which a predator prepares his or her victims to be abused causes as much, or in some cases maybe, even more damage to the victim as the sexual abuse itself. And I'm not sure that we spend enough time talking about that. I'm not sure that we spend enough time looking at that when it comes to talking about sexual abuse, the effects of sexual abuse on children, the effects of sexual abuse across a lifetime. I don't think that we spend enough time talking about how the grooming process or the testing process or the preparing process fits into the end result, which is emotional, physical, spiritual, psychological damage to a victim and again, it's easy to see sexual abuse itself and as damaging. And you know, you can look, okay, that was perpetrated against a child, that was probably terrifying. It was it was bad news and I can totally understand why that would damage someone. But but then you look at like, you know, sweet uncle whoever who bought little Sally ice cream cones and gave her horseback rides and all this stuff and you might think, well, if that had never turned into abuse, those are those are just little acts of kindness or whatever, you can separate them from the abuse itself, but you really can't do that. And I think that the main reason that you cannot do that is because the abuse that occurs taints every single thing that leads up to that abuse. And your brain, whether you want it to or not, continues to make that connection for a very long time after you're sexually abused. And I'll give you an example from my own life because, well, it's the only one that I've had the pleasure of living. (laughs) But when I was six years old, I loved my abuser. I thought he was amazing. He was super fun. My family loved him. I've mentioned it before. He was the cool Uncle Jerry who would color us pictures. He was an artist, still is, and would bring us uh, pagodas, these little, like, super strong mints that they sold in Indonesia where we lived, Pagoda, the mints, we loved them. He would bring those to us. He would bring us pictures. He would give us piggyback rides. He would put us on his shoulders and, and take us around. Just super fun stuff that kids loved. And I'll, I'll tell you this, For my four other siblings who experienced the same fun and joy and excitement from him, I'm the only person out of the five of us that is unable to separate the joy and delight that I felt for this guy from the sexual abuse that he perpetrated against me. I can't separate those things. My brain has a really, really, really hard time separating them. And I think that that is what makes the grooming process so completely damaging, is that whatever is used against us in order to prepare us for sexual abuse, it's typically things that are pure. It's typically things that, well, in their natural form, I guess I should say, are pure. We know the abuser does not have pure intentions, but if you look at... A six year old child, like me, for instance, my laughter and my joy and my delight and my love for this guy, they were completely pure things. They were just a, a small child innocently loving another human being and enjoying another human being the way God intended for us to enjoy each other. And for my side of the preparing or grooming process, my feelings and my experiences with this guy were, were pure and they, and they were innocent and, and loving and they were good things. And what makes grooming so detestable to me is that it takes very sweet, very innocent things, very natural human reactions like love and trust and the desire for human connection. It takes all of those innocent and pure things and it turns them into something evil. And it doesn't just turn them into something evil when the act of sexual abuse occurs. It turns them into something evil because it mars them for the remainder of the victim's life. It is very difficult for many victims of sexual abuse to enjoy things like close relationships with people. It's very difficult for victims of sexual abuse to enjoy or to even be able to simply trust another human being, to have like a childlike trust for someone, it becomes very difficult. So that trust is destroyed. It it becomes difficult to enjoy taking delight in things. And that's one of the things that I think that bugs me the most is that with the anxiety that I deal with as a result of sexual abuse, one of the biggest problems I have is taking delight in any other human being. And if you look at the way humans were created to interact and the way that we were created to enjoy each other, to to enjoy God and each other, and to have fellowship and to have communion and to have loving, close relationships, when you look at that and then you look at a person who has struggled to be able to enjoy any of that, it is against God. It's against what he created us to be. And that's something that I've struggled with since being abused as a small child. I will have levels of anxiety that rise inside me whenever I feel a joy or a delight for another human being. Just that childlike, like you're so much fun to be around. What a great person. Just this, that just feeling where you just enjoy somebody else because they're great people. That experience for me was marred when I was six years old and it, it's still something I struggle with to this day to just be able to have that innocent trust that other people are not seeking to do something terrible. And, and honestly, like I'll say this, it's not a conscious thing that I deal with. So I want to be clear about that. I don't consciously think I can't trust anyone. No one is trustworthy I can't trust people. I don't think that at all. You know, you might think like, oh, this person's like, she's bitter after being abused and she refuses to trust people. But it's not that at all. It's not a conscious thing where I sit and think, oh, people are untrustworthy. But the level of panic and anxiety that rises inside me whenever I start to feel those feelings of trust, whenever I start to feel those feelings of affection and delight for another human being, whenever that starts to come up, there is this immediate response in my body that's like, this is a dangerous feeling and we need to fight back against that. You know, this is a dangerous feeling and we need to sound the alarm that something terrible is about to happen and induce a panic attack so she stops feeling this affection for another human because obviously that's not gonna end well. Again, these are not conscious thoughts that I have at all. I don't sit and think these things consciously, but subconsciously, right below the surface in the part of my brain where neurons fire and I have no control over it. That's what happens to me physically and physiologically whenever I experience those same feelings and those same relational exchanges, if you will, as I did when I was being prepared for sexual abuse. And that's the part of it that I find so completely damaging. I think that if this dude had just shown up on my doorstep, and this is not to minimize anyone who's been sexually assaulted, and you weren't put through this long grooming process, not to take away from that at all, because the dynamic there changes, and then I think a lot of what we struggle with mentally changes as well. But I do believe if this guy was somebody I didn't know, and he had sexually abused me, I may not have this completely twisted thing happening inside my head and inside my heart every time you know I feel some sort of delight for another human being. But the fact that I went through this process of being prepared by this man to be sexually abused, the fact that he put me through this process where he showed me care He showed me tenderness, he showed me love, he showed me affection and delight and all these wonderful things. They're all positive things, but he used all of those positive things against me and all of those normal, natural, innocent reactions that I had to his advances and his grooming, all of them were turned against me. And it's like your body is is turning against itself. It's like they're using the best parts of you to be able to manipulate you into accepting abuse. And that's something you don't recover from very easily. I do want to interject here that I'm not talking right now about, you know, whether or not you can heal from this or yes, like if you have an issue like the ones that I'm discussing, I've sought therapy for a long time for a lot of the issues that I have related to sexual abuse. So there are ways to work through these feelings. There are ways to overcome a lot of it. I'm just, for the purposes of talking about grooming and why I think it's so important for us to really look at the grooming process like that's what this is about. So I, I'm not saying for a second that you're not going to be able to heal from this, or once these things are used against you, you're never going to be able to enjoy delight or human connection ever again, because that's not that's not true. And And in fact, everybody's different when it comes to how they respond to sexual abuse and what it is about the abuse that affects them. But I do want to say this. If you have not looked back at your story and really dissected or just maybe tried to put to words what you were put through in the grooming process, you might be missing out on a big chunk of what it is that you need to heal from when it comes to your abuse. I think that one of the reasons that I ended up realizing uh, how badly the abuse had affected me was because I went back to the beginning. A therapist actually recommended that I do this. He told me because he was far away from me. I picked a therapist that was really far away. Probably not a great idea, but I was only going to be able to see him every couple of weeks or once a month. And it was just not going to be like a quick process. So he gave me homework to do whenever I would leave. And his homework for me one night was write your life story. And I'm like, oh, dude, seriously, like just write my life story like that's like, you know, I was like, all right, if I need to do it, I'll do it. And it wasn't something I was obviously able to sit and do. I started with kind of bullet points, like the years that I could remember big events that happened in those years. And then I wrote out what had happened to me when I was sexually abused. And as I started writing and as I started going through the the years and months, like the major events that led up to me being abused, so many things came back to my memory that I hadn't suppressed these memories. I think they were always there. They just never seemed significant to me. And suddenly, because I was writing out this story of what had happened to me, these things started to take on a new meaning and they It was literally like the pieces of the puzzle were falling into place. I never thought before that I was groomed. I never thought that, you know, somebody spent time preparing me to sexually abuse me ever. Like that never even crossed my mind. I always just thought like, okay, I just remember randomly I ended up on this dude's lap and and he started kissing me and he started touching me. Like, you know, I just, I remembered the incidences of being abused and I did not remember, save an incident where I saw him after the fact where I got really scared. Like I didn't remember anything leading up to the abuse as being out of the ordinary. And when I started writing it all out, I realized, oh my gosh, everything this guy was doing was to try and prepare me to accept it when he crossed the line physically with me. Everything he did was to manipulate me into loving and adoring him and thinking he was great and giving him my complete unadulterated trust. Everything he did was for that so that I would trust him implicitly so that when he crossed a line, it would not even cross my mind that what he was doing was wrong. And that really was so eye-opening to me because that's when I realized that this guy was not just some random person who accidentally sat on the couch and I accidentally fell in his lap and he accidentally started sexually abusing me. Like it wasn't like that. He planned this and I started to make connections where he was showing up at my house when my parents were gone, where he was, you know, showing up knowing exactly when I would be alone and knowing when he would have access to me. It just, it was very eye opening when I started putting it together. And I tell you that to say, that if you've never thought about this grooming process, then it might be worth sitting down and thinking about. I do wanna warn you like, You know, obviously, if you're not under the care of a therapist, and I'm not saying that you can't ever look back at your past without being under the care of a therapist. I know some people get super, especially if they're therapists, I'll say that, especially if they're therapists, they get very weird about you trying to delve into any feelings or emotions without them. But I don't think that it's going to harm you uh, to sit down and write out your story. If you find yourself unable to do it or the feelings are overwhelming, then I would highly recommend that you stop and maybe get some help to work your way through it. But if it's something that you're able to do, like when I did it, I wasn't super emotional about it. I was just literally remembering details. And once I remembered details and was writing down these details that I realized I had never forgotten, they were always there. They just didn't make any sense. And when I put them down on paper, I suddenly saw this pattern. Like, this guy was a predator. There's no way I was his first victim. He was good at what he did. He was super manipulative. He was highly intelligent and and he knew exactly what he was doing and exactly how to manipulate me and my entire family. And I knew, that's when I knew, there's no way I was his first victim and there is absolutely no way that I was his last. It's very eye-opening when you do that. So again, one of the reasons I think it's important is because so much of what we deal with in the aftermath of sexual abuse and so many of the things that we struggle with as survivors of abuse are related to the grooming process itself and not the actual physical abuse. Again, it's different for every single person, but I think that to ignore the process of being prepared for abuse, to ignore everything your abuser did before they sexually abused you, I think that you're doing yourself a disservice. And I think that sometimes you might uncover something in the story of what led up to your abuse that might be helpful for you in understanding why it is that you react to certain things the way that you do, why it is that you struggle with some of the things that you struggle with. It's been really eye-opening for me. You know, there are some triggers that are directly related to being uh, sexually abused. Sounds I can't hear, just noises I cannot stand, touches I can't handle, you know, that just upset me and make me miserable immediately. And I know that those are related to the actual sexual abuse that I experienced. But there are so many things that I struggle with emotionally and mentally that are related to being groomed or being prepared to be sexually abused by this man. The joy and the delight, I, I go back to that a lot because I I don't really, it seems like kind of a, a frou-frou word. Oh, I was delighted by this man. But honestly, I'm being 100% serious. Like that's all I can, like joy bubbled up inside me whenever I saw this person. And so all of those wonderful, pure and innocent feelings were basically taken and used against me to trap me and to ensnare me. And so what else can happen in a situation like that than for you to be like, oh, none of these feelings are trustworthy. My delight in another human being is not trustworthy. My delight in men is not trustworthy. My happiness or joy or this feeling of, you know, giddiness inside me, that's something that needs to induce a panic attack because it's dangerous. You know, all of those things are related to the process of being groomed for abuse. And I can't say that, okay, if he'd done all those things, the joy and the delight and all that good stuff, and he'd never sexually abused me, would any of those things harmed me? You know what? Probably not. Because if he had never sexually abused me, then all of those experiences would have remained positive in my mind. You know what I mean? Now, if you experienced grooming, because this can happen, and I think it's a scary feeling uh, for some people when they find out that somebody has sexually abused a child and they begin to recall experiences or incidences with this abuser when they were younger that they start to realize were definitely instances of grooming. That can have, you know, a psychological impact on somebody. To realize, oh my gosh, this person was doing X, Y, Z because they were basically trying to groom me for sexual abuse. You know, I it may be... For whatever reason, they decided not to. So yeah, maybe those instances could have a negative effect if you experienced grooming but were never sexually abused. If you found out that somebody was a sexual abuser later, I think that that's an instance where the grooming, even if you weren't abused, could still have a pretty negative effect on you. But I think that by and large, like the only reason that we know that the grooming process is damaging is because we were sexually abused. Because otherwise, grooming, you look at the behaviors of somebody who's grooming someone, and they're all pretty positive behaviors. I mean, when you look at them by themselves and not under the microscope of, okay, this person is a sexual abuser. But an adult male being kind to children positive experience. An adult male coloring pictures for little kids that are bored and want to be entertained, positive experience. An adult male coloring Bible pictures with kiddos and bouncing a small child on his knee, like all those things, like maybe by themselves, they really seem innocent and they're like positive experiences. But when all of those things are leading up to one of the deepest betrayals that there is, they become sinister. They become the opposite of innocent and they become something that can really cause some serious damage to the people who have, I don't want to say participated in them, but that's honestly what it is. I think that that's one of the reasons that it's so hard for us to deal with the grooming process because we feel like we were active participants in the thing that brought us down. That's that's really it. I was an active participant in my own sexual abuse. I allowed this man to Manipulate me I allowed this man to, you know, shower me with all this affection. I believed him. I trusted him. All of these good and positive things that I thought were good and positive at the time ended up being horrible, and I can't trust those feelings anymore. Now none of what I just said I mean is accurate. No, I didn't actively participate in my own abuse. I was a six-year-old child who was manipulated by someone horrible. You know, it's never our fault, but that's how it feels to us. That's how our brains kind of tend to compute it. So if you've never looked at the grooming process, whatever word you want to use for grooming, if you've never looked at it, I would encourage you to do it. Because I think, again, when I first really started to see that pattern of, oh my gosh, this guy was grooming me. And it was so, it was like scales fell off my eyes for lack of a better term, but that's really what it was like. It was like my eyes were suddenly opened and I realized what he was and what he had done. And I finally realized that's why I struggle so much to trust in in some instances. That's why I struggle so much to feel affection and delight for certain people because my brain is constantly hyper vigilantly looking for when that person is going to betray me, and it's really been a help just to be able to identify some of the issues that I have related to the grooming process. And um, I, you know, your mileage may vary. Again, everybody's different. Maybe you, you don't remember anything about the grooming process. Maybe you were too young, or you've blocked it out, and all you remember is is being abused. And everybody's different. Not everybody's going to have the exact same results when they do like their life story, if you sit down and write it, but I would really encourage you to do it. If you just start by writing out the years of your life, going back to the first one that you can remember some of your earliest memories and just jotting things down, you start as you go to be able to fill in the blanks and remember bigger experiences and, and bigger experiences and more memories are there that have always been there. And you've, thought them before. It's not that you've never brought them to mind before, but suddenly they just fall into place in a new way. And I think it's super helpful. So if you ever wanted like a little exercise in kind of how to remember some stuff from your past and be able to put two and two together, if you will, I think that that sort of life autopsy is, is a good idea. I know that it really, really helped me um, quite a bit, not just to pick apart the grooming process and to finally realize how much I had been affected by him grooming me, but also in other aspects of my life, things that I you know I didn't realize had been extremely damaging to me that I was able to look back and see like, okay, I can see where this trauma was and this trauma was and this trauma was. And it was a little depressing when you realize how much in some cases that you've gone through, but I think it's super helpful as well. Um, so that's really what I had for you today. I just wanted to talk about grooming a little bit, and I feel like I need to apologize to Jimmy Hinton for saying the word grooming so many times. It's testing, or as I like to say, preparing, because I really think, for me, that is the word, preparing. Uh, What abusers do in, in order to manipulate their victims, they prepare them for abuse. They prepare them to become victims, and basically to become victims without even realizing that that's what's happening until it's too late. But whatever word that you choose to use, I just think it's important to look back at that. If you haven't ever thought about the process that you went through to get to the point where you were abused, and the different manipulative tactics that your abuser used, It's hard to look back. You know, it is. And again, if you're not able to do it on your own, then I would encourage you, if you have a friend with you or somebody that you trust, then maybe they can help walk you through it. And if it's too much, like too, too much, and your story is more than you can bear, then you definitely want to work through that with a trauma therapist for sure and not try to just uh, do everything on your own. But I, I mean, f- for me, I was able to just write out my life story and be able to kind of look at it objectively. Um, but also at the same time, it was very eye-opening. Like I see things that I didn't see before. And one of those things is that there is so much damage that happens to us when we are groomed for sexual abuse it's just damaging. And and I've said it before and earlier in this podcast, but in some cases, I think it could be more damaging than the abuse itself. So that's what I've got for you today. And if you have any thoughts to add, I love it when people uh, go on Survivor Sanctuary, the Facebook group, and leave comments about episodes and add to them. Because obviously, I'm one person, this is my one experience and like my life experience might help some, but it's definitely not the only experience out there. So I love when a lot of survivors come together and we all share our experiences because it gives everybody kind of not just a sounding board, but also other stories to relate to. So please share on the Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group. I would absolutely love that. Well, have a great rest of your day. And I will catch you back here next time on another episode of Survivor Sanctuary. I'll see you then. Thanks for listening to Survivor Sanctuary with me, Kelly Downing. If you found value in today's podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. Not only will it put a big smile on my face, more importantly, your reviews will help make it easier for other survivors and survivor advocates to find this podcast.